Well, I think that there's so much conflict and confusion in this life that can be avoided if we just defined terms. If we just actually were all on the same page about the words that we were speaking about. A lot of times conflict and confusion come in because people are operating from two totally different understandings of what words mean. We come at things from opposing sides because we just understand words differently. And I think if we were simply to define what we're talking about, it would reduce a lot of conflict. And so my question, bringing this to apply with God, how does that apply in our understanding of God himself? Meaning, how would you define God? And theologians have a word for that sort of thing. What's God like? His attributes. What, what things are God, or what, what things are God, is God known for? We look to his characteristics, his holiness, his infinite nature, his self-sufficiency, his omniscience, his omnipresence, his omnipotence, his mercy, his, gra- his wrath, his grace, all of those things describe God. And where do we know about all of those things? We know about all of those things in his word, where he's revealed himself. This is how we know who God is and what God is like. This is how we define terms about God himself. This is how we understand it. I'm sure it is no news to you to see that there is a great number of completely differing ideas about who God is and what he's like at large today. And I would call us back to his word to understand who God is and what he is like. And church, our job is to define God in biblical terms. Our job is to say the things about God that God says about himself in here. And I want us to look through this passage this morning and pick out a few attributes of God hiding in this passage And that will hopefully increase our faith and our hope. Paul will continue to use the example of Abraham as the perfect picture of faith. If you're not there already, Romans chapter 4. Last week we continued on with the Apostle Paul's case for justification by faith, particularly over the anticipated objections of his Jewish brothers. He figured out what they were going to object to, and he systematically last week went through all of them, and he used two big examples from the Old Testament. He used Father Abraham, and he used King David. He looked at Father Abraham, and he said that justification by faith has always been the plan, because way back in Genesis, it said Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Hundreds of years before the law, righteousness came by faith. He used King David, who sinned massively and was forgiven. Why? By grace, through faith in the coming, the future Messiah. And we saw that justification by faith forgives the unforgivable. And his point in all of this, justification itself, as far as justification, the only thing that counts is faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. Christ. And we said, of course, that that faith is never alone. It is always accompanied by good works. This week, Paul will continue to appeal to the example of the father Abraham, the founding father of Israel, a picture of true faith. I just want to set a little bit of context here because it's still kind of in this same stream of argument of, of Paul proving things here. So let's pick it up maybe from chapter 4. Look with me, the back half of verse 11 where he tells us the purpose 
of Abraham believing by faith. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but also who walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Of course, talking about Jews and Gentiles were all the same way justified by faith. No matter what you've done, no matter what background you are from, what ethnicity, how much money you have or don't have, your health or no health, it doesn't matter. If you are a Jew or a Gentile, however you, wherever, whatever you are, you are justified by faith. And that was on purpose, he said, so that Abraham could be the father of all who come to believe God through faith. And Paul goes to jump to his point this week by expanding his argument and continuing to reference again Abraham. Look at verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and to his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. And we see another one of Paul's favorite words, for. He continues his argument, building his argument systematically here, purpose clause after purpose clause, because, 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 for, 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 this is why, right? Side note, anyone who says Christianity is not an intellectual faith, I don't understand that because you've not read Romans. I mean, Paul's giving us a master class in how to intellectually defend the faith here. Paul says, for or because the promise to Abraham and to his offspring that he would be heir of the world, meaning that the Messiah would come through Israel, he was the father of that nation, and he would share then in the ruling and reigning of the offspring of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, that promise did not come through the law, but it came through faith. He says it once again. He said it probably 10 times in the last couple weeks, beating that nail into the wood. But Paul uses a kind of a different way of, of talking about it. He introduces the word promise this time. Paul's speaking of the word promise. There isn't really one particular promise. He's talking about promise with a capital P about everything that he said to Abraham. And if we look back at what what was promised to Abraham, we know that he was promised a people, he was promised offspring, he was promised a land, he was promised that, that he would be blessed and his name would be great, he was promised that all of the world would be blessed through him, and so when Paul's talking about promise, that's what he's talking about, all of that, that promise that God made to Abraham. And all it says back in Genesis, which Paul's repeated three times now, is that Abraham believed him, that he would receive the promise and it was credited to him as righteousness. One pastor I heard this week said that Abraham simply just believed God at his word. God said he would, he would do it, and Abraham simply believed him. The promise believed by faith, not in the law. Why? We talked about it. Well, one reason is chronologically. The law wasn't for another 400 plus years. When God made that promise to Abraham. The law was nowhere in sight. So it is based on faith. Paul goes on to give other reasons. Look at verse 14. For because if the promise to those who adhere or obey the law, they are the ones of the, the heirs of the promise, then what good is their faith? The adherence or, or the, the, uh, the anticipation of God fulfilling the promise is based on their obedience. So where's faith? 
Paul says it's literally empty. It's null and void. It's worthless. Why? Verse 15, he says again, well, for because the law, as we've already seen in Romans, brings wrath for the guilt of sin, which we've all incurred, right? The law, God's standard for morality, this, I'm God, I created all things, here's my standard, right? And we know that we have all broken God's law, Romans 3.23. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, every single human being, right? That's the standard, And so we compare ourselves to the standard. It doesn't take very long before we realize that the only thing we see in the law is we sin. It makes sin very, very apparent because we all fall short of the standard. He says something a little confusing there. He says, um, where there is no law, there is no transgression. That doesn't mean that if we didn't have a law that there would be nothing to worry about. No, because it's imprinted on our hearts still. But it means that there's no standard there to compare it to. So there has to be a standard, and we know then what is sin because of the standard. Once again, he's pointing to them that the law was never designed to justify. The law was never designed as the way the promise would be fulfilled. The law was designed to make us aware of our sin and thus God's wrath for sin. One theologian said the reason God's wrath is activated by the law is because people fail to keep it. So therefore, there's wrath for sin. Paul is saying once again to his Jewish opponents, guys, get this straight. You are attributing things to the law that it was never designed to do. He sums it up very nicely in verse 16. Look at verse 16. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. This is the point. It all depends on faith, and Abraham is the father of all who have come to believe by faith that they will be justified, that the promise that God had said that we will be forgiven is true. It is all by faith. It's critical that it's on faith because why? It displays not our ability, but as he says in verse 16, This is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace. Because now we see the grace of God because we know there's no possible way that it could come from us. So it's the gift of God in his grace. It depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. And watch this, be guaranteed. Paul says it is is not unknown. It is not on shaky ground. It is firm. It is true because it's not from us. It is from him. And therefore, that is guaranteed. And it is guaranteed because of his grace. And so I'll say the first point this way. We are to have faith in the grace of God, which enables our confidence. We're to have faith in the grace of God, which enables our confidence. Our faith is not in ourselves, right? Over and against the American 2023, like, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, find the better you inside of yourself, whatever it is, be a better version of yourself. No, we don't have a better version of ourselves in here. We have to go outside for that. Faith is not in ourselves. And specifically, it's in the character of God. And specifically, Paul points to God's grace. 
It is the grace of God that he, he does this for us. Our confidence is not in ourselves then. Our confidence is in this grace of God which guarantees the promise, not ourselves. Not only is he gracious, this promise is guaranteed. Does that not enable our confidence that, that this promise of salvation that we have from God, the promise of justification, the promise of forgiveness, all of the promises are by his grace and they are guaranteed. God is the one who justifies. God is the one who saves. We are included in this church. We are all the spiritual offspring of Abraham. I heard another guy this week say, when, when God told Abraham to look at the stars and, and try to number them, and so shall your offspring be you were one of those stars. You were one of those offspring in the sky that God said, one day you will be grafted into the family by faith because of my grace, and I guarantee it because of who I am. The promise will happen. This, again, is in complete contrast to the traditional Jewish interpretation, which says Abraham's faith was in his ability to obey the law. Abraham was the master obeyer. Like, nobody could possibly obey better than Abraham. That's what the traditional Jewish interpretation is, and Paul's destroying that. He's blowing that out of the water right now. It's the faith of Abraham has in God, not himself, and his grace, which guarantees the promise. So here's the big question for our application. Do we consider our salvation to be secure because of God or because of our own efforts? It's been said if we could lose our own salvation, we would. We didn't gain it for ourselves. And some people worry, can you lose your salvation? Well, if we could, we would have. We're human beings. It's not resting on us. It's resting on God, the grace of God. He guarantees it, not us. Do we have the faith of Abraham, the faith in God, not in ourselves? Our salvation, church, is guaranteed. It is secure. Again, not by us, but by him. Otherwise, known as assurance, the doctrine of assurance. Do we have assurance of our salvation? First Peter, First Peter makes mention of this in chapter 1, in verse 3. It's a beautiful uh, passage on assurance. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. Watch this. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. Do you guys think about that on a Monday morning, that God is literally guarding your salvation, protecting your inheritance, keeping it and guarding it in heaven for you, for the time that he has appointed for you to get there? It's all his grace and it's all his guarantee. And think about this, church. What is actually the object of your faith? Because we're Americans. We could easily slip into our own performance. We can easily slip into, well, I didn't do so well here, or I did pretty good here, or whatever. The object of our faith, we continually have to bring it back to God himself. Because we will slip. Justification is a work of God 100%. So is salvation. Sometimes we can slip into that evangelical kind of squishiness where we're like, well, yeah, you know, I place my faith in God and I'm doing my best. And no, everything is a work of God. What we bring to the situation is our sin 
in our faith. He is even the one who causes us to persevere in this. He builds us up. He strengthens us. As the song says, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. He will lead us home. How should that impact our perspective? How should that affect the level of our faith? That's the God that we need to have faith in, church, like Abraham did. Abraham was a picture of true faith, but that faith drove him to have tremendous hope. Look again at Romans 4 and verse 17. As it is written, right, Paul's going back to the Old Testament now to prove his point. He says, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. If there's anybody who's 100 years old today, I apologize. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver considering the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Watch this. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Paul goes back to the Old Testament again, appeals to using the classic formula, it is written. Anytime you see it is written being dropped on the page, he's about to quote an Old Testament passage. The concept of Abraham being the father of many nations is in many places, perhaps most clearly stated in Genesis chapter 17. God gave this promise again several times with different components to to Abraham, but we can sum up maybe a good passage in Genesis 17. We'll read that so you know I'm not making this up. When Abraham, or Abram at that time, was 99 years old, and the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abraham fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham." For I've made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. See all of that? When Paul's talking about promise, that's a good passage to go to, what he means by promise. All of that. Abraham, 99 years old at this point, and God is saying, you will have more offspring than you know what to do with. Generations and generations will come from you. God made the promise that Abraham heard with his own ears. And Paul says that came to fruition. All nations, anyone who comes to God by faith is part of that promise now. But Abraham once again appeals to God's character. This God whom Abraham believed in. What kind of God we see in the scripture. Back in Romans 4, in verse 17 Abraham says that he believed in this God, watch this, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Church, this is our God. 
The one who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that don't exist. Two of those those huge qualities of who God is, giving life to the dead, appears to God's sovereignty over life itself. He's the one who gives life. He's the one who knows the moment that you were born, and he's the one that knows the moment that you will pass away. He has ordained all of our lives. Perhaps he's also referring to Abraham's faith at the near sacrifice of his son Isaac, where where Abraham thought, even if God makes me go through with this, he will surely give him back to me in the resurrection. That never happened because Abraham passed the test. And of course, Paul is foreshadowing the resurrection of Jesus Christ himself, who will rise from the dead. God gave him life. God brought him out of that tomb. That's the kind of God, the God that gives life from death. And saying this also appeals to God's power in creation. Right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created them ex nihilo, out of nothing. There was nothing there, and God created the earth. And so God literally, what, calls things into existence that didn't exist. You look at the, at the creation account in Genesis, and God said, let there be light. These things happen. God calls things into existence, and they come into existence. Why? Because he's the creator. Another reason why you can't just take Genesis out of the Bible, because you don't understand it. It's really important in Romans. It has a lot to do with our God and who he is, how we understand God, how we define terms when it comes to God. This church is the God that Abraham believed in, and this drove his hope. Verse 18 says that Abraham believed in hope against hope, meaning there should be no reason why he had hope. But he had hope, not in himself, but in that kind of God who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that don't exist. He still believed that God would fulfill his promise because of who God is. When he was told that you are the or will be the father of many nations, he believed God against all odds. What's one of the biggest odds? Well, he was about 100 years old. Typically, 100-year-old people don't have babies. And he said, my wife, not much better. Her womb is dead. She hadn't had children at all. And Abraham's thinking about this And he believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Verse 20 says, no unbelief caused him to waver. Instead, what? He grew stronger in his faith as he gave glory to God. How was he going to give the glory to God? Because he knew God had to do it. There's no way that he would be able to do this, so he knew God had to do it. So God was definitely going to get the glory from this. They're going to look at that couple and be like, there's no way kids came naturally out of this situation God had to do something here, and he did. He wasn't trusting in his 100-year-old reproductive system. He was trusting in the Lord God. Rather, in verse 21 and 22, we see that he was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Fully convinced. He says, that's why. Scripture says, that's why Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. Look at the level of faith that he has, but not in himself, in knowing his God. Here's the second point. We are to have faith in the power of God, which fuels our hope. We are to have faith in the power of God, which fuels our hope. God's word, <coughs> excuse me, God's word, as you would imagine, is full of examples of faith. 
Abraham being one of the greatest. Hebrews 11, as many of you know, in the Faith Hall of Fame, as it, as it just kind of goes through and catalogs all of these great men of faith. We read about the faith of Abraham. Look at Hebrews 11, starting in verse 8. It says this, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received the power to conceive, even when she was past the age, because she considered him faithful, who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many of the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grands of the sand by the seashore. Was this, was this by the power of Abraham, church, or was this by the power of God? It is displaying the power of God, where he hoped against hope, hope where there shouldn't have been hope. Dr. Schreiner writes, What sustained Abraham in his faith then was a vision of the God who could do the impossible. This is where we get down a little bit of a slippery slope. And the question becomes then, okay, God of the impossible. Then whatever impossible situation that I want to happen, I can just then slap this promise right on this situation, and then God's on the hook to make that happen, right? Isn't that how it works? There's a lot of false teaching on this. Abraham was clearly following God's will. We read that summary in Hebrews 11. He left everything to follow God. He believed these crazy promises to become the father of all who would believe in God. We have to resist the temptation, once again, to define God in ways that just meet our desires. We have to resist the temptation to, to tweak the God of the Bible to get him to do what we want him to do. And there's a lot of false teaching, particularly in the Word of Faith movement, where we would... They rip this verse out of context and they say, well, speak to the things in your life that don't exist and voila, they will exist. You want healing? Just speak healing into your life and then you will have healing. Just call it into existence. You want a spouse? Declare that they will exist and he'll be on your doorstep tomorrow morning. You want more money? Just speak that truth into your life. Believe it and you will receive it. And you get the idea. This is a real thing. We have to be very, very careful with this. What is Abraham having faith in? Not just that I'm going to make God like some sort of divine vending machine, right? that I'm going to do what God has called me to do. Now, here's the disclaimer, right? I'm not saying that you shouldn't pray for a spouse. I'm not saying that you shouldn't pray for healing. Godly spouses and healing and all of those things or, or pray for changes in your financial situation. But we have to hold them loosely and know that we can't just staple this promise out of context and put it onto whatever situation we're in because that's ripping the Bible out of context. The whole context is God's redemptive plan, which seemed completely impossible to bring the Gentiles into something that started with the Jews and do it with Abraham and Sarah who are 100 years old. That's the kind of impossibility we're talking about. And then spread through the whole world. We also have to do our part to make sure we are maturing in holiness 
and doing what God has called us to do. Many times we see people wanting to declare this promise over their lives to get the things or, or get unstuck or get out of a mess, and they're not doing much themselves to get out of the mess. They just want God to come and rescue them and use this promise, and that's not the way the Bible says it works. Church, do we know the God of the Bible, listen, as he's revealed himself here? That's what I want us to walk away with. Abraham did, and that's who Abraham trusted in, that God. That's who Abraham hoped in. That's who Abraham let shape his ideas and plans and hopes and dreams. Ask yourself, are you allowing God to shape your future, or are you trying to map it out and just get it over to God so he'll sign off on it? Abraham was letting God shape his future, and he was trusting in God to do that. What situation are we stuck in where we need to refocus our faith in the power of God to refuel our hope? What situation in your life seems hopeless? Is it more hopeless than a 100-year-old couple having a kid? God can transform any and all situations. It's important that you don't hear me downplaying that. I know I pick on the prosperity gospel and their false teaching here, but listen, God still radically transforms any and all situations. We have to understand that. But it's according to his will and it's according to his power. And that's our hope. We leave that to him. Life can often drain us of our hope. And so how do we refuel our hope? Well, it comes down to what are we hoping in? Do we understand the power of God? Do we understand God as he is? Abraham did. Look at all the qualifiers he gave in that section. He's like, no, the God that I heard with my own ears, the God that I believed in, the God that gives life to the dead, the God that speaks creation into existence which didn't exist, no, that God, I am fully convinced that God is able to do what he promised. That's the kind of faith we're talking about. That's what will fuel our hope because it has to be placed in the biblical God, not any other version of God. What Paul said in chapter 3 is, too, is true as well. There is no one righteous, not even one. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, so then what is our true and complete and ultimate hope? And that's where Paul lands the plane. Look at verse 23. I'm sorry, Eliza. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Paul brings it back around to us, to Christians. He's writing to the church at Rome. He quotes Genesis 15, 6, one more time. and says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him at righteousness, as righteousness. They were written, these things that were written were written for our sake too. They were written for our benefit too. We will be counted righteous as well. How? Well, back half of 24. It'll be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. After deconstructing all of the arguments of his Jewish opponents, he brings it back to the whole point. It's never been about justification through the law. It's never been about obeying the law. It's always been about justification by faith. And he says it clearly one more time here, just so you know, faith in what? Faith in who? Faith in Jesus 
Christ. That's where it all has to come back to. And we talked about this last week. The Old Testament saints looking forward to the Messiah who they didn't know the name, right? Hoping, having faith in the one that was prophesied to come. That's how they were saved. We're saved the same way by faith, except we know his name is Jesus. So we're saved by looking backward, the work of the cross, just like they were saved by looking forward. If we unpack this a little bit, we look again at how he phrases this. Who are we to believe in? God. But the God who raised Jesus from the dead, just like verse 17 told us that he gives life to those who were dead. Also, his faith is in God who calls into existence the things that did not exist. Like what? Like us. Like Gentiles. Like people who are not part of the nation of Israel. We didn't exist in God's sight. But he brings us into the family. Why? Through faith in Jesus Christ. We who had no hope now have hope. And Jesus delivered over to die on the cross to satisfy the wrath of God for our sins. Raised to enable our justification that through faith in him we can be declared innocent of the guilt of our sins. Paul says all of this has his ultimate, this whole thing, this whole promise Capital P promise that he gave to Abraham has fulfillment where? In the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's where this is all ending up. So for the third point, I'll say this. We are to have faith in the finished work of Jesus who justifies us. We're to have faith in the finished work of Jesus who justifies us. I hope this is obvious from the text. But there's no justification apart from Jesus Christ. You can't think about the character of God without ending up on Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate expression of the image of God, indeed God the Son, God in the flesh. This whole discussion in chapter 4 has been about disproving the false Jewish idea that we could be declared any other way. And if you were Jewish at that time, you had lots of other ways to maybe hope in. Well, I'm Jewish. I'm special. I'm not like those Gentiles, right? Look at all my family. Look at the temple. Look at our wonderful city. Look at all of these things. Look at how much I obey the law. Look at circumcision, my ID badge, that I'm part of the family of God. And Paul says it's none of that. It's faith. It's faith in Christ Jesus specifically. Paul provides arguments for the truth of justification by faith, and specifically, church, faith in Jesus. That's how the Bible says. And when we define terms about how we're saved, we've got to go with what the Bible says. It's Jesus. Paul said that already back in chapter 3 and 21 through 24. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and watch this, and are justified how? By his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Every religion seeks to answer that question. How can we, because we know we're sinful, how can we be declared innocent in the sight of a holy God? And the Bible gives us one answer, faith in Jesus Christ. That's the one answer. Yes, it's exclusive. Yes, it's narrow-minded. Yes, it's simple. Sorry, that's what it says. Well, not sorry. I'm not going to apologize for it. That's what it says. And people say, well, you Christians are so narrow-minded, you're so bigoted, you're so exclusive. I'm sorry, truth by nature is exclusive. If it's right, if it's true, it's not any, one plus one is always two. 
things like that. We have objective truths that we have to, uh, we have to submit to. That's the way the world works. The Bible reveals the only answer. We are to have faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ who justifies us. That's how the promise given all the way back here to Abraham in Genesis is ultimately fulfilled. That's what Paul says. It's another explicit statement of the first order doctrine that we talked about for the last couple weeks, justification by faith or the doctrine by which the church stands or falls. Our sins required a sacrifice, and Jesus was delivered up to be that sacrifice. However, he was resurrected from the dead to prove the sacrifice was accepted and that we could be justified if we have faith in his finished work. We need both the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That's what this passage says. So how does all this, again, relate to the promise of God given to Abraham? I'm glad you asked, because here's the big idea. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises. Jesus is the grace of God. Jesus is the power of God, expressed in his defeat over sin and his glorious resurrection, and now his current reign, where he's putting all of his enemies under his feet. Jesus did the work. It is finished. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises. It's all got to come back to Jesus. And there's a little verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 that I love. 2 Corinthians 1, just the first part of it says simply, all of the promises of God find their yes in him. All of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. And so when we're having those moments of doubt, when we think, am I really forgiven? God promised that I would be forgiven. How do I know that I'm forgiven? Jesus. Jesus did the work perfectly. He died and he was resurrected. I go back to Jesus for my assurance of forgiveness. How do I know that there is something waiting for me in heaven, being kept that's imperishable, undefiled, waiting for me, and I'm being guarded until that time? How do I know that? Jesus. Because Jesus did the work. How do I know that I'm loved by God? Because he promised that he loved me. How do I know that? Jesus. It all comes back to Jesus. Any promise that you can think of, will he treat me with grace? Does he love me? Will he justify me? Will he forgive me? Yes, yes, yes. And all and only through Jesus. Do we have confidence that God is guaranteeing our salvation? Do we have the assurance of salvation? Nowhere the religion has the assurance of salvation. Do you guys know that? In the Catholic Church, you're not allowed to have assurance of salvation. That's a no-no. Biblical Christianity says we have assurance of salvation. How? Jesus. Because Jesus did the work. Because Jesus resurrected and right now he's sitting at the right hand of God the Father ruling and reigning. How do I know that God will be there when I'm in trial? How do I know that God cares about me? How do I know that he feels my pain? How do I know that he feels my loss? Jesus. Because he lost his son in order to bring you into fellowship and forgiveness and justification. Church, do we have faith in the power of God to let it fuel our hope? And where is hope lacking in your life? We need to realign ourselves with the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that don't exist. Submit to him fully, not in your plan, 
Not in your ability to tweak out your plan, but in God. The one who raises the dead, the one who gives life, the one who speaks things into existence. His plan, work out your salvation with fear and trembling as he works in you. And consider Jesus, church. Always consider Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, our justification. Where do all the promises of God find their fulfillment? In Jesus. If God did not spare his own son, how will he not, together with him, graciously give us all things? Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your word, which teaches us about your character, your word, which defines you, May we be defined ourselves by having faith in the God that you have revealed yourself to be in your word. We pray against false teaching that we would, we would not fall prey to it. That when we recognize something that says something about Jesus or something about you that is not scriptural, that we would be able to spot it, Lord. And that most of all, we would gain our hope, we would gain our faith in the God as you have revealed yourself to be. Lord, the God who is gracious, the God who is powerful, the God who has given us Jesus to be our justification, and the God who fulfills every one of his promises, just like he did with Abraham, through Jesus our Lord. We pray it in his name. Amen.